Hi, welcome back to the Be That Our Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. On today, we are very excited to bring you a conversation with Dr. Mark Anthony Gooden, who's here to discuss the incredible book entitled Five Practices for Equity-Focused School Leadership. We talk about how that book sets leaders up to think about leadership as a community-focused event. Before we hop into that discussion, I want to let folks know that you've heard me mention several times on the podcast that I'm doing a lot of um, work with schools around the intersection of AI and inclusion. And if you're looking for a little free professional development, you can catch me with the NEASC panel September 26th. That's next Tuesday. They've got an incredible lineup of panelists gathered where we are going to be talking about what it means to unleash the power of AI in education. Again, that's a free event sponsored by NEASC. That's the New England Association of Schools and Colleges. If you would like to register for that, check out the link in the show notes. In the show notes is also where you're going to learn more about Dr. Gooden's book, as well as about ways to connect with him. So let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Gooden. Mark Anthony Gooden is the Christian A. Johnson Endeavor Professor in Education Leadership from the Teachers College at Columbia University. He is a past president of the Executive Community for University Council for Education Administration, that's the UCEA, and chair of the Department of Organization and Leadership. Gooden was a secondary mathematics teacher and has spent 22 years in higher education, developing and teaching teaching courses in leadership, diversity, law, and research methods. His research focuses broadly on culturally responsive school leadership with specific interests in anti-racist leadership, the principalship, urban educational leadership, and legal issues in education. Again, the book that we're discussing is entitled Five Practices for Equity-Focused School Leadership. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Gooden. Okay, Dr. Gooden, your latest book, Five Practices for Equity-Focused School Leaders, sets school leaders up with an actionable framework, loads of anecdotes, research, and reflection questions. And folks, I should say, all of this happens in roughly 200 pages, so you also manage to do that really economically. Um, This is a book that was put together by a team, And I wonder, actually, if we can start off by you talking more about that aspect, about how we've got four different folks whose diverse perspectives weave together throughout this. Um, Do you want to say more a little bit about why that was important, um, maybe as like a design decision? Absolutely. Yes. And and thank you for uh, that question, Tricia. It's it's such a a great one. Um, So my my three colleagues and I... um, we really came together after a um, uh, a workshop or being at an all-day conference where we were um, presenting together. Um, and we we had this thought about coming together to um, to do a book. And I believe um, uh, the lead author uh, on the book, Sharon Rad, was the first person to say, hey, we should we should think about writing a book. So we brought to, uh, each brought about, uh, a couple of decades of experience in um, K-12 education and higher education and uh, doing work as professors and consultants around this work. So um, we figured that we we liked each other. Um, we had a really good relationship and we thought that there was a particular need to uh, engage in this work and move the field forward. And also at the same time, 
come up with a book that could um, be based on research, but also balance that with speaking to our practitioners and being useful in the work that they were doing. So, so we so we really uh, started a slow process toward developing the concept of the book and writing and finding a publisher. Um, and what we did uh, at the time was just plan on meeting every couple of weeks or so. And what we found is that we we really liked each other as individuals uh, even more. We appreciated uh, coming together to really set up a, an opportunity to build community around this work. And so ultimately that became a, a focus of the book to present it in a way that really met people where they were, but also reminded people that doing equity focused work wasn't necessarily what the detractors would say. It wasn't necessarily this divisive way of engaging in work where people were going to fight each other and, and give each other a whole bunch of pushback without getting to some real substance, substantive goals around the work. And so, um, importantly, we all came to the space with our different uh, racial and cultural identities. I identify as an African-American male. Um, another author is Gretchen gibbons Jenneret, who identifies as an African-American woman. Uh, Sharon Rad identifies as uh, a European-American woman, a white woman, and George Theo Harris identifies as a white man. So all of that served to really make a uh, powerful book. Um, and once you include some of the... Um, context of where we came from and, and our families and, and our professional connections, it really made for a rich conversation that led to uh, what we thought was uh, exactly what we envisioned and uh, an exciting project in the end. I mean, it doesn't surprise me to hear you say that this is a book that's authored by folks who worked on their relationship, who actually enjoyed learning together, because in many ways, this is a book about leading as a community. So I feel like that really is sort of walking the talk of the book and really thinking about what does this mean to lead with a network, to be willing to listen to others' perspectives and see what that means to move forward um, as a group. I, I think, again, I'm, I'm wondering about another design choice. Very early on in the book, you address the role of narrative, which sometimes I think doesn't necessarily get the focus and attention it needs in schools. And I'm talking here specifically about the chapter entitled, The Stories We Tell About Why We Don't Do Better. Can you talk to listeners about why it was important to address the way that deficit oriented stories can be really dangerous and also how your book positions the reader to interrogate them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so one thing to, to kind of frame around this is, is um, dealing with the definition that uh, around privilege, for instance. So I'll back up just a little bit. I mean, we all walk around with our stories. We have a set of values, uh, beliefs and assumptions and they're influenced by uh, where we come from. They're influenced by you know, our parents or guardians. They're influenced by people we befriend or people who influence us. And we talk in the book, if I can push you forward a little bit and then come back, we talk about this, this concept of individual or, or self-paradigms. And th this, is way, this is the way that people think about the world and they make meaning of the world. And sometimes, sometimes, those paradigms are um, illogical. <laughs> sometimes they're paradoxical. Sometimes they may be outdated. 
But that doesn't mean that people don't hold very tightly to them and they believe that this is this represents my truth. And so those paradigms also tend to have this this uh, they're, they're wrapped in privilege oftentimes. Right. And so we know that privilege is, as we define in the book, this honor, these honor and benefits given to individuals with particular social cultural uh, identities and backgrounds. So, for instance, you may have um, white male privilege. Uh, or white privilege, or you may have male privilege, you may have heterosexual privilege, you may have Christian privilege. And if you have any of those, and many of us oftentimes do, that becomes a part of your narrative and it comes out in ways that you may not even recognize. And so the other thing that complicates this story a little bit beyond that personal narrative, uh, when while I'm talking about paradigms, I should say that there are, there are also collective or systems paradigms that interact in, with, with your individual paradigms all the time. Uh, at, at me all the time. And so in many cases, it influences it and it sort of aligns. And to the extent that you have um, white privilege, for instance, and your view of the world aligns with a systems privilege around, systems um, paradigm around right, white privilege, you feel okay. You feel like I'm a part. You feel like I'm in community. But to the extent that your identity is not aligned with that. Let's just say that you don't have male privilege and you have privilege, you, you say, well, uh, if I don't have male privilege and as a woman, I feel that there's some ways that I'm oppressed by this system, that becomes a part of your narrative as well. And, but when you share your narrative as a woman in that space, you start to feel and hear things like people saying, well, aren't you really just kind of like making excuses and you know, shouldn't you just suck it up and be successful? I mean, understand how the system works, but then you start, feeling that there's this tension between who I am as an individual and what my personal narrative is and what my story is. So what we invite people to do is really look at some of those stories that we tell in schools. You know, we say all kinds of things that, and we make all kinds of assumptions about parents, for instance. We say, oh, well, these kids are not succeeding because, you know, these parents, uh, they don't value education. I mean, I, I've seen how these people operate in, for your listeners who don't see me, I'm doing using the, uh, the infamous air quotes. Um, but they they make these assumptions, right? And they say things uh, without really recognizing that not only is this hurtful and maybe an inaccurate or incomplete narrative, it's one that impacts your practice. It impacts how you engage with the world and it impacts how you lead. And so what we try to say to, or what we say to people is recognize what those narratives are. Let's get those out. Let's talk about some of the common ones. And we do include some that, that are there in the book uh, because many new teachers have heard those. Many teachers that have been around have, have uh, heard them and some of them have repeated them. But we wanna push back against that and say, we can create a different, more empowering story. We can create one that gives people the space to grow and to push back against those narratives without saying to folks, that while I can't believe that that is your individual paradigm, I can't believe that a person would still be on the planet who thinks like that. No, we don't want to go into that space. But we do want to give people some gentle pushback initially, but we need to firm, firm that up later to say, we really have to think about how our story impacts our practice and ultimately how it hurts kids. We don't want to do that, right? And so... Improving practice is really going to ensure that no kid, nobody should be oppressed by any aspect of their identity. But if we're not interrogating our own narratives, that's exactly what we're doing. 
We're, we're claiming that the status quo is neutral. We're claiming that it's, it's harmless. Uh, when in fact, what we're really doing is going into this space where we're finding out that we're not, not being or not using uh, approaching education uh, equity in a way that supports students. We, we, inspect, we in fact are penalizing kids for their uh, social cultural identities, which is not something obviously we should be doing. And what I, I think I really appreciate too about the book is, you know, you're suggesting this is going to take time and this is emotional labor. This is deep work, right? For me to really think about the stories I've told myself about myself, let alone the stories and assumptions we're making about others. This is not something where it's like, okay, I do this in a one hour meeting, then I'm done, right? I feel like the older I get, the more able I am to reflect and think about how my whiteness shows up in different spaces, right? And really grappling with some harmful practices that I used to have. You know, I, I think when I first started teaching going back 20 years, the model of schooling I had was very much like disciplinarian, you know, like I, I feel like there was that terrible advice about the, like, don't let the kids see you smile until December. So I thought like sternness, right? Like that's important. And it's hard for me to reflect back on like early on in my teaching practice, that was the advice that I put into action. But I think your book also says like, okay, you know, yes, grapple with that. And then think about how you need to move forward. Right. Um, and I, I just, I, I think I really appreciate that you, you frame it as this is not just intellectual work, it's emotional work as well. And I think yes. that's a, a dangerous thing, you know, to think we can just intellectualize our way into equity. Like it has to tap in to our feelings. And I, I think that's such a strong message that comes through throughout the book and through various anecdotes that are shared as well. Was that sort of a, like an intentional value of the group that you wanted to make sure, like, let's not underscore the importance of our emotions in it as growing as equity focused leaders? Yes, it, it, it really was. Um, and, and one of the statements I, that, that comes to mind, Trisha, uh, is this thing where we say um, equity is not for the faint of heart, right? And so we, we want to prepare people um, for this engagement around, um, and you hit the nail on the head, this intellectual and emotional approach to the work. And what we found over, over the years in doing our work individually, and also uh, it was confirmed in our collective conversations, is that this is very heavy for a number of folks, right? Um, but what we have said to people, uh, what we've implied in our intellectual learning about pedagogy, for instance, is, well, you know, you, you're learning about how to teach children. And I don't understand all these other things that come into play. Uh, funny, you, you, you know, I heard my variation of that was uh, don't smile before Christmas, you know, <laughs> you said don't smile before December. Um, but 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 my my understanding of the work was very early on. There were always these emotional responses to any conversation about equity. So, for instance, early in my career, and I still write about this and still talk through. But there was a term I started I, I would use, and people in the field were using it at the time: is, is anti-racist leadership. And immediately, you know. 
some colleagues would have an emotional response. They'd be like, well, I, I, I know what you're trying to do, but you're using this word, this word racist. I said, well, actually I was saying anti-racist and then said, well, no, 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 let me just say racist is just such a negative word and people are gonna have an emotional response to it. And I said, that's, that's, that could be good, right? And so it said, well, no, 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 they're, they're gonna, they're gonna be turned off by it. I said, turn off by the term racist or anti-racist. <laughs> what do we say? But it was just such, such fearfulness uh, around this idea, such timidity around this, this term that they just said, and we can't have folks have an emotional response in a recession. And I just said, but there are people who experience this on a daily basis. There are people who are oppressed and they have emotional responses that they sometimes quietly grapple with. And we don't acknowledge that. We don't say that that's something that they that we should be addressing. Except in the book, we say, no, we, we do. We are going to address that. And we are going to raise the stakes for people who have been able to, through privilege, to not engage emotionally, frankly. Um, we, we've heard over the years, and, and I actually have uh, some writing on this, where when I would uh, originally engage in this work and my students were very, very honest with me and I've learned a lot through them over the years, but many of my white students would say, for instance, and we've heard this uh, over the years, it's just, it's not that I felt like I didn't have a race. That's not, that's not accurate. It's just that I knew I was white and then I knew that was all I really to think about it. It was like I walked through the world knowing I was a white person, except when people would bring in some kind of comment that made me feel like I felt guilty for being a white person, or being a person with privilege. And then I didn't like that. And so I had an emotional response. So I, I rejected or I resisted it. And then I heard things, my students actually said this, that family members would say, or things that they would, words that they would, and I, I subconsciously sort of put blinders on and I just didn't interrogate it. I, I knew it was wrong, but I just felt like, well, I made up excuse. And so my students had to grapple with that emotion and they didn't want to do that because prior to engaging in racial reflections, nobody had said, you're going to do this as part of an assignment because otherwise it could always be like, oh, okay, they're talking about that. I'll just be quiet and wait. And so I, I encourage them to say, you know, you have a role in this. And uh, as we talk through it in the book, you know, you can move toward change and change is available to the curious, the courageous and the committed. But you have to have those pieces in place and you have to say, wow, this requires me to be courageous. But in the end, if I remain committed to this, um, I am going to be a better educator. I'm going to be somebody, if someone says a state, makes a statement, um, for instance, we, we uh, in a piece where I, that I go back and work with, have some of, interview some of my, my uh, students who have gone through the program with me, they get a chance to talk about this process of writing a racial autobiography and, and applying that to their leadership and years later, what that meant for them. And so not to go on and on, but to suffice it to say, one of the things they recognize is, for instance, when one of my principals, former principal, former students who was a principal said, a parent said, call me a racist. And I didn't have this kind of res defensive response. It hurt. I was disappointed. But because of the process I had gone through with my fellow cohort members, 
I knew this, to sit into that space and ask better questions. And by the end of the year, not only, not only had a better relationship with that parent, they had a better understanding of my leadership and I had a better understanding of why they were saying what they were saying. And so to me, that represents growth and that represents, represents real change in the system. But initially, that principle had to start with that idea, hmm, I'm curious that this person has just called me a racist. Yes, there are some hurt feelings, behind, there are some concerns, but let me go a little bit deeper and try to figure out what's happening, what am I doing to make them feel this way, and how can I listen to their experiences and understand what that meant. And this was a white principal who was called a racist by um, um, a Latinx, uh, a, a Latina, well, uh, a woman who identified as um, Hispanic American. And so there was a lot going on there, but ultimately, as I said, there was a positive outcome because the principal didn't get defensive and run away from that conversation. And I feel like in many ways, I think of that as one of the truest tests of a leader, right? Because I think that urge to just immediately go into a defensive position, the reality is everybody else in the, in the learning organization is learning from that, right? Do you right. open up to questions and try to learn from them and try to build relationship or do you, do you just shut it down? Because fellow teachers see that to a certain extent, students see that as well. And I, I think you're also getting to the reality that the things that were silent around, it's like a breeding space for hate. Um, you know, I, I think for obviously so long in education, we've been silent around things that now we see the issues. Um, you know, in, in the work that I do, I do a lot of consultancy around LGBTQ plus inclusion, but I do a lot of consultancy around educational technology. And, uh, you know, this is not not recent. Um, in a, a workshop where we were looking at AI, I had referenced the connection actually between equity, inclusion, and AI. And uh, I had sort of just in conversation referenced having a wife. And someone messaged me and they were like, I don't understand why you had to make this political. And so, <laughs> you know, okay, it's not the first time, it won't be the last time you know, tell me more about your thoughts on, you know, why me referencing my spouse is political. Well, I have never heard someone, uh, you know, really try to push their agenda when I'm trying to learn about something else. Okay. All right. Let's, you know, these systems are, are intertwined. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about that. And also just, wow. So you think that you've never attended a professional development session from someone who is a member of the queer community before, like also let's look and let's talk about that. Um, now I think though, saying this, I'm not suggesting that it's easy. And I think your book also doesn't suggest that it is easy. Right. And it is, I, I really appreciate that you position it as a growth because I think we have to come back to this question around what is the role of, of education? And if we don't see our own and others' potential for truly transformative learning, then what's the point, right? Um, and I, I really appreciate how it's sort of a, not only can you grow as a listener, not only can you grow as somebody who cultivates relationships, but so too can people in your community. Um, and I, I just, you know, again, later on in your book, you talk about if you're an equity-focused leader, 
This doesn't mean like you're the superhero or the savior doing it all on your own, but you're working with and in and by your community as a leadership team. Can you talk more about how we need to move away from what so often is this traditional hierarchical form of leadership in K-12 schools in terms of like, you know, I am the one who dictates what happens and, you know, nobody should question my authority. And, and I would say that that model is uh, often unchecked. And not only is it not great for that leader, it's not great for, for the rest of the community either. Yes, that's right. And and thank you for sharing your your um, your story, Tricia, because I believe, uh, you know, we have to do more of, of that in our particular roles, even if we're teaching about technology. Right. Um, th this is the thing that folks need to hear that. And kudos to you for staying in conversation and trying to get into community with that person. Hopefully they thought they started to think a little bit more like, you know, kind of should be. Why am I? Where does it come from that I have to call that political, right? Uh, because it's not abnormal for people to talk about their families if they're doing group work in a workshop. You know, it's just the same. But so, so once again, I just, I just want to acknowledge that. Um, and I think it's important, you know, once again, that we recognize, uh, and it's kind of a quote comes to mind, that the worth and potential of every child should never be limited by their race, disability, socioeconomics, language, gender, and sexual identity, or religion. What would that person be like in the space where they had a child in their classroom who was really struggling, questioning their identity about around being queer? Would they then say, you can't be political in the classroom? And then would that take them back to the purpose of education, which is what you just so eloquently pointed out? Um, and moving to your, your question, um, just this idea about this whole notion of, of the hero leader, right? Um, and we we talk through that in the book because uh, there is a part of the collective paradigm, the systems paradigm, the larger thing that keeps responding and 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 sending messages to us. Not only does it say this is what a leader looks like, right, but this is how a leader performs. And the problem with that, there there are multiple challenges. So I just you know in another narrative, we we have a. Um, I have a friend and colleague who's a former student who has been, um, uh, who for many years was a principal of a uh, school in Harlem and she identified identifies as a black woman. And she has so many narratives of so many times where people are showing up at her building, having a full on conversation where multiple times throughout the conversation, they had a question like, oh, this is so great. What's happening here? I would love to talk to the principal. And she continued to say, well, when they brought you, they, they said, this is the, I'm the principal. And when I, I explained it and I said to her, I'm the principal. And the person just kept thinking like, no, there's no way. <laughs> a black woman can be, the, I don't know if they were looking for a black man, but certainly not a black woman. They were looking for somebody else. And so that challenge is what we see as the leader in our mind, whoever we see that person as. And oftentimes it is a male. Uh, and men, for many people, it ends up being a white male, but for some, it ends up being, you know, a male of some other color, but it's a male, right? And so the, the hero leadership, we argue, should be replaced by a collaborative approach. Here's some reasons why. One, the equity work requires leaders to share their narrative. It requires them to be vulnerable up front. And those terms right there for some folks is different. 
when you're sharing your narrative, people are getting an opportunity to know more about who you are and why you're doing this position or why you're in this leadership position. And we would hope, we would hope that it's more than for just personal gain, right? I, I, I subscribe to the fact that most educators, even if students have admitted early on that, oh, I thought I would go into the principalship for more money. Then I realized later, I'm working so many more hours, I'm actually making less money. Like, but are you still committed? Are you still committed to the work? Which is which is what we try to get them to recognize up front. So a collaborative way really avoids making equity decisions in isolation. We say that this is a this is an approach that invites multiple perspectives. We actually say if we're going to do equity, we want to have multiple perspectives in the work. Right? We want to we want to uh, embrace inclusion. And so it, it avoids that isolated decision making. And then it really supports building relationships. Being collaborative means I'm in a circle of people who are helping me make decisions versus I'm the top down person and I'm responsible for everything. And I'm sort of handing you things or how, and when mistakes are made, it's all my response. No, when, when mistakes are made and they will be, we can say, how can we approach this in terms of a solution? How can we get more minds involved? And so it actually ends up I believe ultimately being less stressful for the leader versus trying to be the heroic leader, uh, which which once again in the in the ether there's always this idea that you're going to be the person who's responsible as the principal. Yes, there's some of that that we can't get around, we can't avoid, but there are many instances where we can actually think differently about uh, how we run meetings. For instance, I think we you talked a little bit about um, just this idea of being a collaborative leader means that we are not the sole individual always developing the agenda individually, always running the meeting from start to finish and talking about talking through how we would do it. Obviously, as we develop, there's going to be some of that, but we really are encouraging leaders to, to think more collaboratively about the work because it not only invites more opportunities to grow and develop, but it invites others to more opportunities to be to be vulnerable, right? And 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 it is better to think about doing this work in a way that in, in, in invites dialogue versus trying to say, it's all about uh, top-down leadership and offering things in terms of bulleted points and discussions and, and and limited discussion and dialogue around what we do, you know, just kind of do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. And I'm, I'm wondering to your thoughts on, I think there's a lot of unlearning for folks to do because, uh, you know, like maybe I'm aging myself, but I feel like that model has been in place for a while. So I think there's a very strong reality that some people will, will be thinking, I've actually never experienced being in a meeting where not only were we invited to share our perspectives or disagree with the quote unquote leader, um, but like we knew it was going to be okay you know, that uh, it wasn't going to sort of be uh, something that, you know, the, the leader would view as like, oh, this dissent that you shall be punished for later on. I'm wondering if you see kind of a connection to what this means to be thinking about that in our personal lives too. Um, there's a, a podcast I love listening to. This is from Baratunde called How to Citizen. My favorite episode, listeners, if you check out just one, Adrienne Marie Brown was on and they were talking about what it means to practice democracy, um, you know, not just as a citizen of a state, a city, a country, but like, what does that mean for you to practice it in your neighborhood, in your family, 
right? Like you are planning something for the weekend. Does your family get to kind of like talk a little bit about what their ideal situation for that weekend is? You know, if there's an issue with some neighbors, like do you get together and talk about it? Or is it sort of like the gossiping behind one another's back? Um, and it's this really great conversation about what it means to really be practicing democracy at all different scales. And I wonder for someone who is thinking, I do want to be an equity focused school leader. Do I also need to be thinking about an equity focused family member? You know, how can I be thinking about being equity focused in my friendship groups, um, you know, outside of who I am as a professional as well? Yes, yes. Such a such a beautiful point. Thank you for the suggestion of the podcast. Um, so another quote comes to mind, and this 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 idea that inclusion is not a destination, but rather an ongoing journey of transformation and growth. And so, what I love about that quote is that it, it recognizes that we are on the road, all of us, to becoming right. And so, it's also exciting in that we can we can experiment and tinker with our lives in in these really meaningful and powerful ways around. Well, what if we what if we did this differently and asked a different question, and and what if we put folks in a different position and and then determine how you know how it would work? And so I I I happen to subscribe to that idea that yeah we we equity focus being equity focused should really go beyond just the work you're doing and we should do things and see what the reactions are going to be like. Um, so I can speak, you know, just I just do a couple of examples, really, just to be quick. So I'm just coming from off of a stint as the department chair of um, my my uh, my colleagues in, in the Department of Organizational Leadership here at Teachers College, Columbia University, and and um, you know, I, so some of the highest compliments compliments my colleagues paid to me were were, were like, oh, you. You do you do this, this this cultural responsive approach, just what you do in your book, and this is and so I'm not saying that to push my ego up forward initially, or you know maybe a little bit, but I think that the the important thing is what I try to do in the meetings. And yes, if you look at it, it looked like kind of the traditional agenda mostly, but what there was just a couple of things that I changed that I had done before. One is. This idea of what I use in class is kind of a check-in processes or a celebration of uh, people's successes or what they're excited about. Uh, the other was just to give my colleagues time to come and meet, but also make sure that every time they came to meet, there was going to be lunch and there was going to be conversation. And at the beginning of the meeting, sometimes I couldn't get them to stop talking and say, we never get a chance to talk to each other. We just do research. But it was just the idea that they could be in a space where they could share their ideas and be more human. And I talked to them about checking in about what's really going on with you. And we're so busy as professors sometimes that we don't get a chance to do that. Uh, to make sure I recognize my colleagues have particular points where they got a chance on the agenda to share their aspect of leadership, which made it, once again, much nicer for me because on certain committees, I I didn't go to the meeting. I didn't. And so that was their time to share in committee form, but also share how they were leaders in that space. Uh, and I intentionally pushed against uh, the college wanted uh, chairs to be, uh, say, go to a particular kind of meeting. And I said, I'm gonna elect one of my colleagues who I also knew had an interest in that area. And one, I, I thought this person could be the next chair. 
you know, so I, I say all that to say I was always pushing different ways to challenge my own leadership to do different things. And then one of the things I did, which my colleagues, this is not unheard of. It happens more in the K-12 setting is I did an evaluation of my leadership at, at the end of the first year. And it was, you know, I won't go into the details of how, but I just sent it out and, and I invited my colleagues to, and they were just like, okay, that was great. And then it was like, I shared it with them. They're like, oh, we were so surprised. We thought that you would never share that. And I was like, this is the good, this is the bad, this is what I need to work on. And I chuckled about some of it and didn't take myself too seriously. But it was really something that they had not seen a lot of because oftentimes the top-down leadership approach, the heroic approach, it sort of a, takes on this a, a sort of power of a deity. You know, like I'm kind of almost all powerful. So there doesn't need to be any questions, right? I'm in the position. But I, but I always teased them and said, you know, looks like I did okay and you guys want me to come back, you know, another year. And I, I guess I'll try to improve. But it, it mostly ended up being quite positive and I was pleasantly surprised by that. But a lot of what I had done was really just trying to include more collaborative approaches and recognize, um, for instance, we have hierarchies in higher education. And so I took an awareness into that. And unfortunately, in many higher ed institutions, if you know the history, I'm sure of the American institution system is um, there's a, a emphasis on the tenure track professors as being the folks who have the most votes or the most democracy. And there were these really challenging rules where folks who were lecturers, for instance, couldn't vote on certain things. To some extent, OK, I understood. But in, in some instances, it really was making it feel like we were setting up these divisions between people by their um I must create like this system of classism based on people's roles within the organization. So I made sure that I met with lecturers and talked to them about their experiences and what they needed and how they could feel more a part of that process if, in fact, we were going to be a community. And I am, I am happy to say there were changes uh, in how lecturers were, uh, were able to participate in our faculty meetings. But those are challenges and things that we have to really ask ourselves how valuable are these hierarchies and why do we maintain them? Is it just tradition? Is it just historical? And why are we making people feel bad about stuff like that when we don't have any strong reasons other than traditionally, that's why we did it. And so those kinds of things really, really happen. And then the last I'll just share about my 16-year-old daughter who I'm always nudging and pushing to be more, take on more leadership uh, roles. And um, I always ask her things that, you know, she, she wants to be a leader sometimes and she's a typical 16 year old. She wants to share how she knows these things. And then you say, well, you're going to be responsible for this. And it's like, ah, nope, that, that's what parents are for. I'm like, okay. So it's funny. Uh, but it, it's, it's, she's a lot of fun to think about and, uh, engage with around these topics. And, uh, also there are challenges though. There are challenges when, when, you know, there are things that, she does when she's not supposed to. And, and she hates when I said, well, what do you think? You know, what do you think would be fair punishment for this? And, you know, I don't want to do that. That's what parents do. I know I'd be wrong. I don't want to so, say, yeah, but we're talking it through. We're trying to be democratic. We're trying to give you a chance to now be like an adult. And, uh, and strangely enough, it's at those times when she's less interested <laughs> in being the adult. <laughs> you know, this adulting stuff is hard right there. I don't want to do that part. Yeah, there's plenty of time for adulting later on as well. So I, I maybe I maybe agree with her there. But, you know, Dr. Gooden, your point about I feel like that word tradition, whenever it gets brought up, I feel like um, we need to say like tradition for for who and for whose benefit. Right. Because I feel like there are so many things that we have 
hid behind in saying, oh, but this is a tradition. And, you know, if we're talking K-12 education, that tradition is not the student's tradition, right? This is their one time in grade nine. This is their one time in grade four. Um, so I, I think being willing to always ask that question around, but who's benefiting from this tradition continuing, who's benefiting from us finding a new way of doing is a great one. Um, but you, you know, you bring up your, your daughter and before I hit record, we were talking a little bit about social media and I'm interested too, in the ways in which our media shift the way that we think about hierarchy you know, your, your daughter is very much growing up in an ecosystem where like TikTok is very engaging for, for a 16 year old and, and kind of, um, shows up, I'm sure a lot in, in her friendship groups. And that's a media where if I go on TikTok and I say like, this is what I think, blah, 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 blah. That app, that platform has, you know, access for somebody to do what's called a stitch and say like, well, you think that, but here I think this. And in many ways, actually, I think it's really interesting that social media has kind of shifted that power dynamic, because if I go back, you know, 20 years, lots of folks didn't necessarily have the opportunity to be either sharing their opinion or debating. And I know that there's positives and there's negatives with lots of folks having access, but I, I'm wondering too, how that's going to shift for that generation where they're very much used to the idea of politician, celebrity, whoever it is that has a big platform, you have a voice, but also I can kind of respond to that as well. Um, Cause I, I'm kind of interested in the media where there is that opportunity for folks. You want to share that? Well, also we can weigh in to other media where it's sort of like um, this is here. Nobody can respond. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or just how, you know, again, I'm thinking about like the next generation of, teachers who have lived always in a information ecosystem where there is kind of a, a more access to engage in a conversation than there was when I grew up. Yes, yes. Yes, this uh, another great question. I I feel as if honestly I am figuring out a lot of this and what it means in terms of how we um present information and, and maybe a better way to say that is I have some thoughts about what it means even though I don't have some concrete approaches or methods to how to get there what it says to me and you've summed it up I think really well is we essentially have in addition to what you've described a a different expectation around access to information and that pushes against what we have traditionally, if that word again, done in the academy. So for instance, one of the requirements of being promoted in the academy, as you know, is to publish in particular academic journals and to present relevant information and have it judged by your peers. Well, one question about that being in the academy for education it raises a question about how do how would teachers and leaders get access to this information that's peer reviewed it's not free it's not oh there's not open access to it there's a fee it, it, it exists behind paywalls however as scholars it means that if we want to continue to 
support newer teachers, like you said, and newer leaders to some extent, who've grown up in a space where I not only had access to information, I had access to the experts to some extent. We can't be behind, have our information just exclusively behind a paywall, and we cannot exist in a metaphorical ivory tower without having any access or connection to the people. So it's up to us to figure out how do we become more accessible. Um, and I think that there are definitely some scholars who have really done very well at this. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm one of them. I wouldn't say I'm the worst. Uh, I did get a warning from my students uh, probably, oh, at least seven or eight years ago. It could be, could be you know, longer. That's that, you know, you've got to start thinking about all these good things that you're saying and pushing them out and making connections. And and they were trying to explain to me at the time how to do what was called Twitter. And, and so, I mean, I listened and I gathered a, a larger amount of followers and uh, my daughter teased me, like, you know, you got, you know, it's not a huge amount, but in, in, in the minds of, in rel relative to my colleagues, I find it's more than because most of my colleagues as professors, they don't like Twitter. They don't just like, they just, it's such a bizarre, it's like a bizarre animal. And I just keep saying my students, according to my students, we have to think about not just Twitter, but other ways to get information out and to engage. And as I try to become better at it, uh, I, 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 I do that because I recognize there is a need and there is a change that's happening in higher education. And there's a, there's a, there's a change in how information is presented and even how students compose papers. And you, you mentioned AI earlier, we have to be uh, having those conversations um, because if we're not, then, you know, we, we, we really run the risk of uh, partitioning off what we've done in a way that uh, not only limits who has access, but I think it limits our ability to be effective uh, on, on, on as, as effective as we can be. And, you know, I, I will say, I feel like you mentioned that you're trying to get better at it. And I feel like the book, I think, you know, I don't know if that's something that you were juggling with or was in the back of your mind when the book was coming together, but I really appreciate how the book, yes, it has research, but yes, it also has those very personal stories because I think in many ways, yes, of course, research is very important, but I think we sometimes underestimate it is our colleague to colleague stories that I think like, you know, if you, if, if I feel like my emotions being tapped, I think that's a way to get me to care about the research a little bit more. Um, and I, uh, you know, again, I just really think our shared stories and then the genuine, I know, you know, often it's not uncommon for a professional development book to say, like, we've got some reflection questions, but the ones in your book are really high quality, right? Like these are actually questions that I could think about for a long time. So it's just, I think you've showed your reader this empathy piece in really respecting who they already are as leaders and really thinking about what's a question that actually like a really great conversation is going to come out of this. It's not just, what do you think about this? You know, like the, it's really quality questions. So I would say, again, the book, I think does think about that reality that of course, for many educators, one of the things I hear all the time is how, uh, how limited they are with time, right? It's, it's when you work in education, it's sort of like you're doing 25 things simultaneously all the time. And so I would say this is a book I think that meets that person 
where they are, but also does so with compassion and respect, which is a, a really great balance to strike, but not an easy one to strike. Thank you. Well, thank you. That that means that means a lot. I, it's always it's so rewarding to hear you present that perspective and and to uh, give validation that you know we we made that uh, certainly from your your perspective and and I, I will say we we really worked on being thoughtful about the questions. Um, still try to do that, you know, as well in in sessions with people try to do once again that aim to do that in the classes and and it's it's once again rewarding to get that feedback because you you have hit the nail on the head again educators are busy and to and they are curious about a great many things but they also have a limited number of hours in a day and they they tend to like to get some rest and sleep and they need to right and so we wanted to say if we had this amount of time in front of somebody and that amount of time for them open this up and what was going to be most useful to get the ideas percolating? Because I have, a, as you can tell from the book, we, we have a huge amount of respect for educators and what they can do and what they have uh, within their power in terms of impact. But we also recognize the humanity of people, um, understand that this is not an easy job. And we recognize that this is challenging for a lot of people. And we have folks who are detractors and who have done their part to um, really discourage a fair amount of educators. And that was never our aim. We, we're feeling like if people can go through the book, that they're gonna be enhanced. They're gonna feel better about who they are and recognize some of the, um, we don't use this word a lot, but just some of the shortcomings of some of our, our, our higher ed institutions who, as a country, once again, we're part of that country. We, as as educators of folks who are edu going to be educators, have struggled with that. And um, while it's not the time to, to do that, but I've had conversations and have done trainings for my fellow professors who have admittedly said, my prep program, my doctoral program, we didn't talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and we know that we don't have conversations where we talk about this nearly enough. Yet, as I say in workshops, and I'm going to be working with some uh, leaders later, we, we worked together uh, last month. You hear about this, at least if you're watching once a week on, on the, some story like, wow, how does this, how do, how do issues of equity keep coming up? And we never talk about them in formal, or we talk about them way too little in our, in, 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 in our formal educational processes. And I, for one, believe it should be happening across multiple areas beyond education um, because it's a part of our history uh, as a country. It really is. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. You know, there's not a system untouched by it. And that's, you know, again, sometimes when I hear folks saying like, I just want to learn about AI, I don't want to talk about equity or inclusion. It's like, Okay, let's open up ChatGPT and listeners to be fair, like ChatGPT is trying like they, you know, some of the searches that you do now, uh, it will kind of say like, I don't know how to do that. Or, you know, I am, I'm not human, I'm automated, but for a very long time, you would go to ChatGPT. I am a school leader. I in K-12 education, I would like to learn to lead better. Give me 10 books I should read. Every single one of those 10 books written by a white cis straight male author 
right? Like, so we've got to be thinking these algorithms, they're fed on data that's problematic, that's going to replicate, right? So educational technology is not neutral, never has been. So you're you're absolutely right. And I think it's what I, I also love about the book is you're talking about every leader can be equity focused because the other thing I've seen happen in K-12 schools is almost like this outsourcing of, well, you know, we're going to have a DEI consultant. We're going to have a DEI lead work here for a few years and that'll sort it out. And it's sort of like, this is all of us are doing this learning. This is not one person's role over there. That's temporary. Like think about what you're saying when you're saying that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You enough said as they say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dr. Gooden, um, you know, the book recommending it listeners, please do. It belongs on every professional development library shelf. Your website ways to connect with you will be in the show notes for a listener who is saying, great. I want to get a PLC, you know, bring a community together to discuss this. We'd love to perhaps connect with you later on, invite you in as a guest for folks who are already excited to speak more with you. Uh, what's your preferred way that they contact you if you're interested in having that kind of further dialogue or have the capacity to, I should say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, one of the things I'm learning and, uh, you know, it's, is, uh, Twitter is a great way to connect, uh, as well. I have, as you would imagine, get so much email, but, uh, but they can definitely reach me at, at Gooden PhD. That's G O O D E N PhD. Uh, the website, which, uh, has a form on there. If you want to uh, include some more information and ask some questions, uh, or have me, you know, consider me for a book talk or something, whatever, uh, that is, uh, Gooden. PhD again, same, same spelled the same way, dot com, goodandphd.com. And then last but not least, as I increase my footprint, uh, I don't know if that's the correct term on Instagram, is it's at goodandphd as well. Uh, as I try to, to post more pictures, and my daughter reminds me of the importance <laughs> of that. And uh, no, I'm not on TikTok yet, but you know, we can only hope in, in, uh, in the future I'll be there. But yeah, those are the ways. Well, I'll look out for you there and all of those links will be in the show notes. Thank you again so much for coming on to talk more about your your work. Um, again, I really, really appreciate this book. So thank you for all of the hard work that went into it. Thank you, Trisha. This, this has been fun. I enjoyed it.